This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, you're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dashran Yohan. We are at a critical juncture in politics right now. The rise of right-wing populism and post-truth narratives isn't just a Malaysian problem, but a global one. There's also the Russia-Ukraine war, the refugee crisis, as well as the climate crisis. And so, the push to strengthen democracy and the power of the people to build a more equitable society has never been more crucial. My guest on today's episode is Thomas Malcair. He's a retired MP and former leader of Canada's new Democratic Party, the NDP, as well as a former opposition leader from 2012 to 2015 in Canada. And we're going to be talking about how the NDP, a left-wing political party, managed to break through the barriers of the first-past-the-post system, as well as what the priorities of the global left should be. Welcome to the show, Tom. How are you? Pleasure to be with you. I'm fine, thank you. I've only got about 20 minutes with you, so let's get right into it. Big picture question first, what does democracy mean to you? Why is it important? Well, I think that uh, the best way to start talking about democracy mm-hmm. and what it means to me and what it means is to look at the etymology of the word. It comes mm-hmm. from two Greek words. Demos means the people and krates means ruling or deciding. So it's a system of government where the people decide. And you have a free and unfettered election where people get to present themselves as candidates, give their policies that they would like to bring forward. And people make a choice and they vote. And it's that choice, that democratic choice that determines who the rulers will be. It's uh, it's not as uh, as widespread as you would think once you give that definition. But I think right. that uh, a lot of countries have, have understood the importance of allowing people to make their own decisions. What would you say makes democracy essential for a functioning society? Because like you said, um, it is not as widespread as you know some people may think. Um, it is, and it's shrinking as the, as the years go by. Um, there are threats to it. So what makes democracy essential for a functioning society? I believe, uh, to restate your question, that mm-hmm. democracy is essential not only for a functioning society, but democracy is essential for the world. Mm-hmm. If we want to have a world where people are free, that they have liberties, that they have rights that are respected, it has to be in a society based on the rule of law, where everyone is subject to the law, no one is above the law, And the law is applied equally to everyone. So it doesn't matter if you're a part of a ruling party. Uh, It doesn't matter if you're a person who is uh, struggling to get by in society. You have rights. You have to be respected. You have freedoms. And I think that that's essential in the world today. Um, After the Second World War, uh, there were a lot of good efforts by the United Nations. You put together key documents claiming to want to protect the rights of people around the world. But as we both know, There are a heck of a lot of countries in the world where those rights are simply not respected right now. And I think that those of us who appreciate and understand the importance of democracy should work together to make sure that people understand that it is a better system of government where people are allowed to express themselves, determine who their their leaders will be and enjoy rights. It's just it's not just that the government accords them certain uh, 
privileges or the ability to do certain things, they have a right. They have a right to speak. They have a right to practice their religion. They have a right to meet with other people and get together and express those ideas. Those are all fundamental freedoms in my view. And I think that uh, the world is a better place when, when those are respected. You know, you were the former leader of, of the new Democratic Party. Um, and it's very interesting um, because Canada, just like Malaysia, we use the first past the post electoral system. Right. <laughs> right. And, yes. and, and, and you know, you're already chuckling there because it is a generally considered to be a highly, a relatively undemocratic um, um, electoral system compared to, let's I, say, I, I couldn't agree more compared <laughs> to, as you were saying, a proportional okay. system. Y'all have uh, achieved uh, some success. And not only that, not only are y'all a smaller party, but you're a left-leaning party. Social Democratic Party in Canada. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So how did y'all so, do it? Well, some parts of it are, are purely technical uh, mm-hmm. and you have to have good organizations. And when you have a party that has an ideology, in our case, it was you know very social democratic. We wanted to have more social pro- programs to mm-hmm. remove inequalities in our society. Well, we, we looked at it and we said, OK, we've got very dedicated people who want to work with us. And they tended to come out more and help us organize and get people together and present them as candidates. So that actually worked out well. One other thing that we noticed is because many of our candidates were true believers, um, even if they were not uh, immediately elected, they would run again in the next election. And slowly but surely, their names would be out there. People would get to know them. They would become more better known quantities. And uh, I can remember two cases, a fellow named John Rafferty in Thunder Bay and a fellow named Alain Giguerre in Laval near Montreal. Um, I think John ran six times and finally won on his seventh try. Alain holds the record. I think it was 11 times that he ran before he finally won a seat for the NDP. So so that's a, a, one of the tricks of the trade is if you're, if you're with a party, stay loyal and, and keep presenting yourself to the public. And it might just be your turn one day. Absolutely. I'm very curious, you know, whenever we talk about first past the post, there is this sort of, um, especially by the public as well, where um, people tend to, you know, if let's say you have a, you know, some a neighbor who's like, oh, I'm interested to vote for this small party or this independent candidate or this green party or this social democratic party, or whatever it may be. Um, you have family members, you know, friends saying, no, but you're just going to split the votes. You know, um, it's right, not worth right. it because you, 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 you know that it's more important to defeat the the quote unquote bigger evil and so so yes. and so forth. How do you overcome those challenges? They're they're very difficult challenges to overcome uh, mm-hmm. because it's exactly that that we go through here in Canada. There are two parties that have actually won all of the elections since Canada, in its current form, was <laughs> created in 1867, and they're the Conservative Party and the Liberal Party. So they're the the two poles. Um, Mr. Trudeau does a very good job of that. He, uh, you know, he'll come up in the next election because well, we're in a minority, par- we're in a hung parliament, mm-hmm. we're in a minority parliament situation in Canada right now. So at the next election, he'll talk to voters and say, you know, I like some of the ideas of the NDP, but we can't afford to split the vote. Uh, you know, we've got to make sure that we keep the evil conservatives out. And that's definitely an argument that we're going to have to face. One of the things that happened in this election is that the the NDP, my party, the New Democratic Party, Mm -hmm. managed to sign an agreement to support and provide confidence votes to the the ruling liberals. And that way they get to talk to people at the next election and they can say, look, 
we've shown that we're able to work to get a result on things that are important to us. So, for example, they got a dental care program for young people that wouldn't have come into force if they hadn't made that deal. Right. It might be difficult for them to convince uh voters in the next election that the liberals are evil after having been uh, in an agreement with them for a couple of years. But that's another, you know, that's another bridge to cross. But overall, I think that, that that's one of the things that happens in these types of situations. There's always going to be pressure saying, well, if you want to actually defeat them, you have to vote for us. And that's where you have to stand on principle, stay with your, your people. When it becomes too divided, then it, then it can be quite tricky to ever replace the government. In my home province of Quebec, we have a system in Canada where each province has its own uh, legislature. Mm -hmm. Where I live in Quebec, um, right now, we have a governing party that got just over 40% of the vote. There are four opposition parties that each got roughly 15% of the vote. So he still rules uh, you know, with a massive strong majority, even though he, he never got a majority of the votes. Same thing with uh, Mr. Trudeau. In the last two elections, Mr. Trudeau's liberals actually got fewer votes than the conservatives right. but because of that, the the you know the way the, the first past the post system works he's he's in power even though he's got he's had two hung parliaments in a row on the show with me today is thomas Malcare. he's a retired mp and former leader of canada's new democratic party ndp after the break we discuss the priorities of the global left keep it here on beyond the bell box bfm 89.9 Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashan Johan and on the show with me today is Thomas Malcare. He's a retired MP and former leader of Canada's New Democratic Party. And we're talking about democracy and what the priorities of the global left should be. So Tom, I want to move the conversation to talk about um, something that is, uh, you know, on the rise. Um, and it's this right-wing populism and it's you know, you see it in Malaysia, in other Southeast Asian countries, in Asia as a whole, but also in North America, in Europe, of course. and so on and so forth. How do you make sense of this? Well, it's the media that help make sense of this because they create this right-wing populism by echoing it. Uh, we have a, we've had terrible forest fires here in Canada this year. Right. And uh, there's a fellow uh, with a right-wing populist party who has an election coming up, a by-election on Monday. And out of nowhere, he just invented a story that it was environmentalists who were setting the forest fires so that they could prove that global warming exists. It's just complete and utter madness. But you're in a position where the, if the journalists don't mention it, they'll be accused of being part of a conspiracy against that right. group. And when they do cover it and they say, well, it's nonsense, he says, well, well, you're all on the same side. You're against me. So that's the type of bizarre populism we have. as. It's been easier to share information thanks to social media. Instead of having information that gets better, that proliferation of information has included a lot of very bad uh, information, advice, and analysis that simply doesn't hold water. So it's getting trickier. It's not getting easier for people to make up their own minds. In the past, the problem was in many countries, you had state-sponsored news. They could put in whatever they wanted and put their own spin on it. So there is a, a lot to be said for having the other points of view. But at the same time, there's just so much 
madness put out there. Donald Trump yesterday trying to portray himself as a victim, whereas right. you know the federal government has has accused him of serious federal crimes in the United States. So that's where we are right now in the world. And I think that information, education, and I think that we should also teach critical analysis in school. Teach, right. teach young people how, how to read a story, how to be critical about it, how to decide what's actually going on based on their own analysis and their own experience and advice. You, you talk about the media and, and, you know, us living in this post-truth type of world, which is very important point. But I'm also wondering if there's an underlying cause that is causing this, this rapid increase in, in right-wing populism. I, I, I'm going to pose to you something that, uh, you know, like philosophers like Michael Sandel has, has brought up as well. And, and it's this idea that over the past four decades, um, you, we've seen the rise of inequalities, um, you know, yes. and all of those things. Productivity has uh, increased, but wages has stagnated, and all of that. Yes. And what Michael Sandel said is the center-left parties also played a role in essence over the past forty years, in which they weren't strong enough in providing a alternative vision to neoliberal capitalism. You know, besides just that, that sort of technocratic approach to things. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, when people are poor, they're suffering, they're insecure, they latch on to perhaps religion or they even, you know, when, when someone comes along, a strong man like Trump and, and he says, you know, it's, it's because of the immigrants, it's because of, of you know, if sexual minorities, it's, it's because of right. this and that. And people latch on to that because people are trying to make sense of their poverty, yes. poverty and so on and so forth. Yes, there's a lot of scapegoating that goes on. That's a very good analysis, and I agree with it. But one of the things that you'll also notice is it's it's hard to get action on some of these things, precisely because the dominant vision has always been, as you just described, you know, very neoliberal, very pro-free market and globalization. Let's take a good example. The right-wing parties, both in Australia and in Canada, which are two large countries with small populations, have fought tooth and nail to stop any real plan to fight climate change. And their argument is, well, a carbon tax, that's a tax on everything, and that'll come and hurt you because you're making less money now than you did 30 years ago. But the reason that the average worker was making less than than they did 30 years ago is because of those very policies. So it becomes um, both, uh, you know, the, the sword and the shield. Right. They're, they're going after workers saying, well, you know, you, you can't afford to have a plan to, to deal with climate change and you shouldn't because it's going to hurt you and your pocketbook, whereas it's going to hurt future generations long term much more. So it's very hard to speak about that. But I, I do know that in many of the countries that have social democratic governments, the idea of lessening inequalities, removing inequalities by providing good social programs, whether it be healthcare, childcare, pharmacare, to provide you with your medicines, things like that. I think that remains one of the best ways to be able to help people without trying to upset completely the economic order or scaring away potential investors because these things get put in place. And once they're in place, they're very hard to remove. So if you've actually been taking care of social housing and, and building, you know, decent places for people to live. Well, they're there. And it's hard for the a future government that has a more right wing approach to take them away. I think that's that's one of the things that the left should be proposing right now is more sh social programs and more things that will be there perennially uh, to help people long term. As the, as a former leader of the NDP, what do you believe are key lessons 
that progressive parties, um, you know, whether you're center to the left or, or left wing, you can what can these parties learn from the rise of right-wing populism? Because they're doing something right, even if their agendas may be distorted, maybe for self-interest, they're getting people well, to support them. I'm going to say something that might seem a bit funny, but right? I, I'm serious when I say it. One of the problems with ideologically driven left-wing parties is that their explanations are sometimes very complicated. (laughs) And if you want to reach more and more people, you have to say things in a way that is less complicated. And talking to people in a way that they get it, and you can talk on the same level as the right-wing populists who have very simple messages. They're often not true. They're often oversimplified. They're often promising things that they'll never be able to deliver on. But people are listening to them. And I think that that's one of the tricks is that you have to learn the communications tools. The right wing parties have deep polling. They have deep information on what people's desires are. They have algorithms. Donald Trump won in large part thanks to a bank of information that he accessed, which was called uh, Cambridge Analytica. That sort of analysis, getting to know what people are thinking how they're reacting to your different proposals. I think that that modernity right now, because they have greater resources, is is controlled better by the right wing parties. Left wing parties just have to learn how to be as modern and as, as efficient at getting that information to be able to pe- speak to people in a way that they understand and that they appreciate. We are living in in a very important juncture. I feel in 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 this in history. And and that is, you know, polarization is is on a rise. Um, we are seeing sort of tensions, um, geopolitical tensions as well. Um, you know, U.S. and China, then there's the Russia-Ukraine war. So many things are going on. Um, what should the left, um, global left, prioritize? How do the does the global left overcome these hurdles? Well, I would say that the global left existed in much more concrete form uh, 40 or 50 years ago as we were coming out of the Second World War and we were establishing modern democracies in many countries that had not had them. I think that the global left still has challenges, even in a very progressive place like the European Union. Mm -hmm. You have a country like Hungary that is uh, in, in a very different direction ideologically and in terms of respect for diversity and human rights. So I think I think that before we start giving other people lessons, we've got to try to figure out, you know, more locally what we actually want before we can start telling other people what they should want. But the global left, as it once existed, is very fractured right now. When you look at a progressive country like Brazil that had fought off, you know, the the rule of the colonels and things like that, then all of a sudden was stuck with Bolsonaro. The United States, 250 years of successful democracy, and from one day to the next, everything is turned topsy-turvy with Trump. Look at the tragic situation in Italy, a country that had been through a lot since the Second World War that went through decades with Bolsonaro in different forms of governance, and he was able to wreck large parts of the economy in the country. So you've always got to be aware that the democratic institutions are fragile, they're easily interfered with, and it's the the very soft part of, of our structure and our infrastructure and, and our institutions. And that's why we have to defend them uh, so so strongly and, and constantly be aware that, the, that those threats exist both inside, as you say, from right-wing populism and sometimes from without. You know, we talk a lot about democracy and often the counter that some people have is that at the end of the day, if democracy is not going to solve our poverty issues, the, the bread and butter issues, 
then the, what's the point of it? And I think that is one of the the sort of how sort of strongman authoritarian states and and so on sell that thing that we are going to get things done. Um, you know, sure, and this goes right back to 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 Mussolini talking right. about Italy. I mean that that was his right. pitch before the Second World War. You know, give me the government and I'll I'll make the trains run on time. There's sometimes a false dichotomy that is right. made because you'll get some countries that do not respect human rights, but their answer will be, in our country, everybody gets to go to school, everybody gets medical care, right. everybody has a house over their head, and everybody gets food. That for us is human rights, and that goes back, interestingly enough to uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's speech about the freedoms that include that, freedom from want, uh, freedom from fear. So there are other freedoms than direct freedoms of personal expression and religious belief and so forth. So that's not unfair to, to say that. Right. But at the same time, you can have freedom from want. You can have a roof over your head. You can have food on the table. And still have the right to practice your religion and talk with other people right. and not agree with the government. I mean, that's the essence of democracy is you, you're you allowed not to agree with the government. And whether it's a right-wing populist or other forms of government that have existed over the years where you have a single-party system, by definition, you're going to be denying a large part of those rights, even if they're able to provide other things. I think it's a brilliant point you bring up about how it's not a binary situation um, as people tend to paint it. Before I let you go, Tom, um, just one final message from you on the importance of strengthening democracy, particularly in this critical juncture that we are in right now. Well, I've had the good fortune in my political career mm -hmm. to be both in opposition for many years and in power. And of course, I know which one I prefer. It's much more fun to be able to be deciding things. But but it's also important to appreciate the, your role when you're in opposition because you're basically trying to do two things. You're trying to hold the government to account first and foremost, but you're also trying to show that your party, it could be an acceptable replacement, that you're perhaps a government in waiting. And the, the only bit of advice I would ever give anybody in any situation like that is regard the other people in the other parties in opposition as potential allies, because you can work together to hold the government to account. Um, and even the people who are sitting across from you, who are in power and you might be in opposition, never view them as enemies. Mm. You might view them as competitors. You might view them as adversaries, right. but never view them as enemies, because that way a lot will be lost in our democratic institutions. Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. Great to talk to you. All the best. Bye-bye. That was Thomas Mulcair, retired Canadian MP and former leader of Canada's New Democratic Party. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. You just have to look up Beyond the Ballot Box podcast. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.